0: Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Scott Yenner. He is a professor at Boise State University, and he is not usually far from controversy. I talked with him today about Russian literature and why he thinks you ought to be reading it. Also coming out this week, If you've been paying attention to the Man Rampant release season four exclusively at mycanonplus.com, this week is Dr. Scott Yenner's week. He has an episode with Pastor Douglas Wilson titled, Higher Education Hates You. I can't recommend that episode enough. Head to mycanonplus.com where you can stream it exclusively. And now, without further ado, meet Dr. Scott Yenner. All right. Now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Scott Yenner. Thank you so much for giving us your time,
1: sir. It's a pleasure to be up here in Moscow with you.
0: Now, you were in Moscow for uh, an event with the Hale Institute. You are from Boise. Did I say it right? Boise? Yeah. Awesome. Do you correct a lot of people that I feel like that's a Boise thing? No, I'm not a native okay. Idahoan, oh, so I don't okay. have anything
1: invested in it. Yet. Love it. Love it. So
0: you're there. Now, you, you are at Boise State, correct? Mm-hmm. What do you teach there? I teach
1: political philosophy and a little bit of constitutional law.
0: Okay. Which I assume it's that half that brought you up here for the Hale Institute.
1: Both the things. I've written a couple books on the family, and okay. uh, the conference that we had was on the family and the modern situation.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And that is, so I, I recently learned it just in the last year and especially in terms of like family policy. So we had, uh, Dr. Alan Carlson out and that just learning about all that stuff was, was, uh, it's not something that I knew was talked about and, and essentially thought about quite often. Um, so I assume you're privy to all of that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, the, my first book was on uh, how various modern philosophers have treated marriage and what their teaching on marriage was and how it fit in with the political community. Okay. And then uh, my second book, which was published just a couple of years ago, is basically on the last 50 years of political thought on the family wow. and how it's had implications for politics.
0: Okay, and then there was a book on Hume in there.
1: Yeah, I, my dissertation was on David Hume and John Locke. Okay. And uh, so that uh, established my political philosophy, bona fides. Nice. And uh, that was published maybe in the mid-2000s, nice. 2010s. Nice.
0: Now, uh, I'm curious. I, I, I assume you said that with a bit of a smirk and jest. But I assume also in the academic world, which you are certainly inside of, those are important. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, are they important actually? Are they important to you? What are, who are they important to? what is the they bonafides oh Oh, sorry uh well just (laughs) in the (laughs) academic world i mean
1: uh, yeah i i mean i'm an academic uh and uh and i think it's important to uh you know check the boxes to be a well credentialed academic in order to not only just to get tenure and to be promoted but also to have some sort of uh scholarly foundation for all of your thinking so all of my books uh That we've talked about the two books on the family and the book on david hume were published by academic publishers or university presses uh they were peer-reviewed and you know i think that's really crucial um to establish your expertise kind of as an on a nationwide basis very few people um you know as tenured full professors write on the family it's a controversial area yeah and uh having you know behind me not like bomb throwing um Press, but actually a university press where the book has been peer reviewed by at least three people. I think that's a pretty important. It's not the only thing, and it's not like what stirs my heart, but it does. Uh, it, it, it's not nothing when it comes to getting things published yeah, and very, having a reputation.
0: In a very formal sense, it's somewhat mm-hmm. necessary, I okay. assume, for your line of work. It's it's necessary
1: and it's also helpful. Um, I mean, if I'm just a guy uh, without a university affiliation and without really a publishing record, then you know, what is the basis on which I can talk about this?
0: That's right. That's right. And then tomorrow, uh, we will be filming uh, your episode of Man Rampant. So we're very grateful you stuck around Moscow to to do that with us. Um, is, you mentioned something that does not stir your heart. Obviously, was is the family, po- how much is it family policy, by the way? Is it, is it just, what does stir your heart, I suppose? Is
1: it well, I mean, I'm. Uh, I mean, of course, I love my family, and I uh, I serve my church, and those things are really important to me. And uh, you know, the the ideas behind uh, the revolution and family life are also some of the things that threaten the church. Yep. And so, investigating that, and uh, you know, articulating what those threats are and various ways to meet them are what I've spent most of my academic career and really all my life on. It's kind of who I am. And uh, it's what I would do if I weren't getting paid to do it. And uh, and it's what I do as I get paid to do it. So,
0: Can you tell me a little bit about uh, yesterday's conference? What was your role in all of that?
1: Well, there were eight uh, papers and eight uh, family activists slash, some of them are academics, uh, here. And uh, uh, the papers were paired up and there were various themes. So I would say the theme of the conference was Uh, We're facing a species of new totalitarianism that affects family life in really profound ways, but it's also true that the family is one of the great oppositions to it. Uh, It's very difficult for a totalitarian regime to penetrate all of the relationships, the very minute details of life that happen within families. And uh, ultimately, I think that it's very difficult for a new totalitarian regime to replace the human aspiration for love, and uh, and so it has to try to kind of erase that. And so the church and the family are two huge roadblocks to the achievement of any kind of total politi- politicizing of life. And uh, I think that was the, the those were various themes. You know, the the morning we kind of developed the problem, and the afternoon we developed some of the ideas of roadblocks and pursued some of the solutions uh, that were very. Uh, you know, I think excellent papers all, all around. I, I have gone to a lot of academic conferences. It was the best I've been to in 10 years. <laughs> and uh, so I was really, you know, happy to be there.
0: That's awesome. That's really great. And then now there's uh, uh, one of the reasons I told you I wanted you to, to, to come on to canon Calls is I have very, very rarely, or I've not been talking to the right people, found someone who's, who's sort of interested in Russian literature uh, in general. Um, and as I was, uh, pre- so president Ben Merkel, uh, New St. Andrews college had mentioned you and had recommended, you know, you should check out his site. And I was going through your website and I saw, uh, your lectures and I went down and I was like, okay, there's like Dostoevsky. And I think there was a Tolstoy one, Solzhenitsyn, as you mentioned. And then it, I, uh, it sort of turned and I thought like, man, he's actually very interested when I saw the Chernyshevsky lectures. <laughs> and I thought, like, man, he's way down the you rabbit hole. You have to have an axe to grind to read Nikolai <laughs> yeah, Chernyshevsky. That's, yeah. that's
1: right.
0: And then to spend, you know, several lectures on Chernyshevsky. So I thought, man, he's he's down the rabbit hole. So uh I'd love to talk to you about about that world. Could we start? Maybe a good place to start would be Chernyshevsky.
1: Yeah, I mean, he uh in a way is the the beginning point, the Ausprungspunkt, as they'd say in German um, of, of the great Russian, um, literature flowering, uh, that happened in the 1860s and 70s. And most of it is really in response to his book. Uh, his book was written in 18, I think published in 1860. All these numbers are approximate. I'm a sure. political philosophy guy. Um, <laughs> uh, and the name of the book is what is to be done. And, uh, the theme of the book is basically, uh, revolution, but it's a pretty quiet revolution. Though there is a loud revolutionary that appears in the book about two-thirds of the way through. And it's just the story of a young woman coming of age, and she leaves all of the traditional ways behind. She leaves the family behind. She leaves monogamy behind. Uh, She divorces. She leaves her husband. She leaves jealous love behind. She leaves the church behind. She she leaves a free market behind. She establishes a commune uh, where they make clothes for uh, rich people. They share everything in the commune. It's not only a commune of production, but of consumption. Um, She uh, marries a man. They decide that they're not right for one another, and they just kind of switch partners without jealousy or anger or bitterness. Imagine that. Um, And then… And then, like, she imagines there's going to be a whole new future. She has several dreams uh, over the course of the novel. And then maybe a prophet, but certainly a terrorist, comes and visits her, um, and uh, his name is Rachmatov, Okay. And uh, and he is the real prophet of the real revolution that's going to come. So it's not just going to be this little niche uh, built around one young lady, but rather a whole new society. and um, And – and from that, Dostoevsky, you know, he writes all of his, no- his most mature novels come after, uh, after Chernyashevsky. And in several of the novels, you'll find like Chernyshevsky's book is sitting on the coffee table. Right. And that tells you something about that particular character and his disposition. And Tolstoy's big thing is to go after Chernyshevsky's understanding of love. Okay. And so each of them you know, I would, you know, in different ways, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are reacting to this very radical, you know, utopian book um, that Chernyshevsky wrote uh, in the 1860s.
0: Yeah. Do you mind, could you give us even just a, uh, and I ask this because I think there's probably a lot of parallels, even as you unpack Chernyshevsky's novel, that feels like a novel that could have been written today. It would be hot in the streets in the publishing world. Could you give us a little bit of what is the world that Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chernosevsky, what's going on sort of in Russia that these kind of books are coming out?
1: Yeah, so they're written in the 1860s. And uh, so go back a little bit. Um, uh, you know, the, the Russian, Russia had kind of a series of czars where it was like loose, hard, loose, hard, loose, hard. Okay. And, uh, and sometimes it was the same czar so the loose and hardened loose uh only I, I mean by loose uh kind of reformist okay. and willing to loosen the grip of feudalism on russia okay and by hard i mean like wanting to protect the czar's privileges and powers in the feudal order so they were willing to kind of round up revolutionaries and send them to siberia i mean they never really killed that many people and they were kind of incompetent at how they try to protect themselves right but at least they would put them in internal exile you know And, but not gulags, you know, but anyways, we can talk about that a little bit after a while. So Alexander, the first is the czar that defeats Napoleon and, uh, and, you know, in order to defeat Napoleon, he really had to mobilize the country. And in order to mobilize the country to defeat this really large army of the French, I mean, you have to kind of make promises. You have to, or at least people have expectations. And, uh, and he recognized that if he delivered on those expectations, like the kingdom would end. And it would have probably been prudent to kind of slowly loosen his grip on on power, but instead, he and his son, the first Nicholas, um, who came after him, uh, you know they they became hard czars, okay. and uh, they protected their privileges and uh, they put down what were called the Decembrists, the uh, the revolutionaries who you know revolted in a particular year in December. Uh, Alexander the uh, second becomes czar in the late eighteen fifties. And he is he is determined to end serfdom. So, as America is undergoing the Civil War and uh, eventually emancipating slaves, so-called in, in the United States, uh, Alexander II uh, is interested in ending serfdom. Okay, and so that happens just about the same time as the Emancipation Proclamation in America. And uh, serfdom has ended. Now, it's not clear what he replaces it with, but that means that your direct connection to a family in their land has been severed. And really the question uh, was, well, like what kind of political order was that going to initiate? Chernyshevsky could see this coming and thought the, the emancipation of the serfs was the first step in the total revolution of society. We're going from feudalism to some sort of like moderate market capitalism to a communist utopia right. and uh and dostoevsky like he looked at the change and he's like well this isn't human nature is what it is and uh while the change might be good ending serfdom might be good this is not there is no utopia and the effort to bring about a utopia itself is dystopian itself is a problem right and he depicts those problems i think overall in his novels um Tolstoy, uh, I would say, had a moral critique of the new liberal society that he thought the serf ending serfdom would bring about. And the moral critique was, this is just going to bring about bourgeois, shallow, civil servant mentality. um, And it's going to detach people from love. It's going to detach people from their families, uh, which have to be really really rooted in a time and place. And so he thought, like, it was a good change, but it might, it ha, might have very bad effects uh, for human happiness and human life unless a proper art and uh, proper moral teaching were there to kind of supplement the liberal order. And uh, he was there to provide that art. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it was big revolutionary times in Russia. Of course, Alexander II, I think there were nine assassin, assassination attempts against him. Wow. Um, they finally succeeded, uh, I think, in the early 1870s. All numbers are approximate. I've mentioned that, right?
0: Yeah, right. right. And,
1: um, <laughs> and uh, when you have nine assassination attempts, it's not necessary for me to say that the first eight didn't succeed, but the ninth did.
0: The ninth, and yeah.
1: uh, And then his son became a hard czar. And uh, and that's, that czar is the father of Nicholas II, who was the, right. the czar during the Russian Revolution.
0: Now – Uh, in terms of like him becoming a hard after all of that, in relation to the serfs? I mean, did he try to reinstate those hierarchies?
1: He went after the people who were assassins. So so that's a great question because Chernyshevsky inspired many revolutionaries. There was huge revolutionary movements, tons of groups in Russia um, that were involved in trying to assassinate the czar. There were thousands of assassinations of like local... Um, local leaders, uh, his appointees, governors in various parts of the country. And like that had to be put, in, had, an end had to be put to that. And the hard czar that comes after Alexander II's assassination, you know, I'm not going to say he successfully put an end to it, but he certainly took the temperature down quite a bit.
0: Now, um, in terms of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy responding to this, Chernyshevsky responding to this, uh, which sort of movement... Worked, or which writer do you think?
1: None of them worked, right? I mean, you'd have to say (laughs) that Chernyshevsky won in some decisive way because, uh, I mean, uh, Lenin wrote a book called What Is to Be Done, right? He wrote that in 1911. Right? It's the same title as Chernyshevsky's book, and he did that for a reason. That's the inspiration. Um, I mean, the the thing to say is that both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy saw it coming. And tried to stop it and their art was supposed to point to and and kind of sustain and and make more robust the resources that russia might have to resist such a revolution but you'd have to say i mean this is hard to say right you'd have to say that the things that they tried to prop up uh in order to resist the revolutionary spirit like were not strong enough and uh and the revolution revolutionaries won
0: Yeah, as I think about Dostoevsky, a very, you know, passionate, uh, you know, Slavophile, I suppose. Or, you know, we are Russians. We are the Russian people. Essentially, almost a uh, Judaic chosen. You know, he has, like, the relationship between the Russian people and God was huge for him. Do you see him proposing that? Is that what you see him proposing that was sort of easily sort of pushed over?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's talk about one of his books uh, yeah. in this context. Uh, one, I think his most directly political book is called *Demons*. Yeah, and uh, in *Demons*, um, I mean, like many of his books, it's a story of trying to hand down your ways from one generation to the next generation. And uh, there is a set of old liberals uh, who have children, and all of those children end up being revolutionaries, and the the liberals all over the book, like they can do nothing to resist the revolutionaries because they share their aspirations. So like the revolutionaries want to burn down the church. The liberals say, well, let's just go slow. We can destroy it slowly over the course of a generation or two. And and then the revolutionaries say to the liberals, so you agree we should burn it down, <laughs> but the question is timing. Right. And the liberals like, yeah, that's about right. And so they uh, they they can offer no serious moral resistance to the revolutionaries. Um, but there is someone who resists the revolutionaries in the book. Um, his name is Shatov and he is a former revolutionary okay. who kind of recognized, uh, the error of his ways. Uh, he, w- as he was a revolutionary, he kind of vanquished out of Russia. He went to Switzerland. He met a uh, chick. Uh, they got married. Uh, they had a kid, but you know, he's still a revolutionary. He didn't take the family thing very seriously. She, they they just kind of part without even divorcing. He comes back to Russia, pretty disillusioned about the revolution. He becomes kind of a patriot. Uh, his wife comes back uh, pregnant with some other man's child. He says, we're gonna, I'm gonna help you raise that child. And we're gonna found a new way here in Russia. And and he like, we're gonna baptize him. And we have to recognize that he is a created being. And so we have this guy who's a patriot and who embraces a certain, um, uh, you know, Russian orthodoxy uh, uh, in in his faith. And then, like, right after that happens, he goes out to meet someone, and the revolutionaries kill him. And that's, like, the framing of the whole novel. Right. So, I mean, so one, you have to realize that Dostoevsky knew this was a risky endeavor. The revolutionaries then go on and burn down the town. And uh, they make a mockery of an art fest, you know, showing that art itself isn't something that is serious enough to oppose right. um, what the revolutionaries are trying to accomplish, unless it's rooted in something, at least. And so, so he realizes that this is, you know, ultimately a very long-term problem. And, uh, but nevertheless, I mean, Shatov appears to be one of the ways. But then what happens after the town gets burned down? Well, one of the liberal parents turns on liberalism and he kind of goes on a uh what do you call that a pilgrimage okay um and and he's going crazy he's losing his uh he's losing his he's old and he's kind of losing his uh health and he is nursed back to um back to health by a christian woman and then he dies that's like one of the last scenes of the book he dies and uh and you're like, well, where is the path forward? The last video I do on my YouTube station on it is all of the dead ends that demons has. Right. Everything's a dead end. The liberal who changed it a dead end, the revolutionary changed to a dead end. The Christian who nursed the liberal back to health is a dead end because she has no one to marry. So um, you know, there's no marriage at the end of it that can kind of point a way forward. So I think Dostoevsky knew that we're up against it. Yep. And uh, which, which is why I think his last novel, uh, Brothers K, is much less nationalistic and much more Christian in its focus. Uh, like, without a much stronger church um, than appears anywhere in Demons or appears anywhere in, uh, in Notes from the Underground. This cannot go forward. And like Brothers K ends with basically the refounding of a church. Twelve friends gather around a rock and ha- commemorate the death of someone and C- promise graveyard. to return back. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so uh yeah, I mean, I think Dostoevsky totally knew that they were up against it and uh that the revolution was a big, big problem. Yep. Uh, that Chernyshevsky, in a way, had articulated the spirit of the age and uh and also by articulating helped coalesce that spirit um but uh but whether n- nation and church right or nation combined with church or church combined with nation would be strong enough to resist i think he had his had his doubts so
0: 150 years old for the most part most of those books mm-hmm. It they seem you could just drop it right over today. I mean, less feudalism and and things of that nature. How many, how do you talk about the Russian, that Russian collection in relation to today? Do you recommend? I mean, you mentioned your YouTube, you have lots of lectures. Are you drawing a lot of
1: parallels? I think they draw themselves. Uh, I don't think that's a great way to go about, you know, just presenting the books. Um, you know, in a way, my lectures are supposed to stand the test of time, and uh, I think occasionally I'll I'll make a, a remark in there, but you know they're all very prepared, and yeah. um, uh, the the demon's set of lectures is sixteen lectures, all of which are like twelve minutes long, and uh, but it's really a good spine, I think, for the book if you're interested in it. Uh, but yeah, there are. I mean, he his point is that modern liberalism and the revolutionary spirit are aligned to one another. Uh, modern liberalism was a new thing in russia whereas we've been a liberal country in the sense that we defend the idea of individual rights and human equality for hundreds of years and uh, and really thought in some ways had had managed to hem in the revolutionary spirit with things that dostoevsky talks about right um with uh, you know a faithful christian church and with a commitment to republican government and uh, and perhaps other things and uh but now as as you know the the conflict between that revolutionary spirit and the things that hemmed it in is at a higher temperature than it has been really in our whole life here in America here in America right so uh I think Dostoevsky himself thinks he's describing something modern and not per- not particular to Russia and so his book definitely speaks to our time and all time uh, that have uh, this particular ideological revolutionary spirit afoot.
0: Right. So in your lectures, you're not necessarily uh, saying Dostoevsky is essentially your dark MAGA figure. Shatov. Um, Shatov you know, <laughs> yeah. would kind of be the dark MAGA figure, yeah, yeah.
1: if there if there were one. Sure. And um, no, be, I mean, I think Dostoevsky is more serious a thinker than Trump. If that's your question, yeah, and I mean no disrespect to the sure. former president, but um, when I say that, because, I mean, Dostoevsky's, he's a giant.
0: Of course, of course. Do you see, I mean, and you kind of said his last novel maybe provides maybe a very, a much more limited in scope answer. Uh, do you see a movement? So you start with, in your lectures, you start with uh, Notes from the Underground, which you mentioned. How do you see Dostoevsky growing or maturing, or, or if at all?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know that um, that I see him. I, I think his disposition toward the modern regime and his answers to what would fix the modern regime or what could hem it in sure. are are consistent throughout his novels. Yeah, and uh, uh, so I, I don't think that. I don't think there's like a gross development after sure. 1860. Okay, um, the novels before then, I don't think he takes the idea of sin or modern ideology as seriously as he does after. And uh, after, you know, is, his, yeah. after after reading Chernyshevsky, okay. his first you know mature novel is Notes from the Underground, and and then from there it goes um, you know the. The idiot, uh, demons, uh, and Brothers K are really the big crime four. And punishment as crime well. and punishment, excuse me, and and uh, and Brothers K are the big five.
0: It does. I I have the the place that I have wanted to see or, or have thought to have seen growth is something where you have the idiot where he wanted to propose sort of the opposite of, of Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment who was you know split and sort of ravaged in his mind. He wanted to present a truly beautiful. Uh, a truly beautiful man, which is a very Dostoevsky, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know any other author who's talked this way about um, their characters, but someone, uh, uh, a holy fool, if you will. And that novel seems to, uh, his holy fool doesn't seem to do well in his circumstances. He seems to essentially lose. It's not unlike uh, maybe where Shatov ends up and mm-hmm. demons um, and he considered it something like he had failed his, uh, his attempt at, with, with, um, and I forget his name, Prince Michigan. Um And it seems to me uh, Alyosha is sort of finally what he, this is someone who can navigate these uh, high stakes family situations. Um, do you see that? Do you see, or, or is that fair?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, You know, I mean, Brothers K is a long and complex novel. So, um, and I haven't done a video series on it. Um, So those really help. Yeah, I will be, but uh, those really help boil things down. But when you, when you look at what Alyosha does over the course of the book, um, the, the really important things that he does in the last half is he's really, he helps uh, as an agent of Dimitri's redemption and, uh, and, you know, him, him. Coming to accept the guilty verdict because he's been guilty of many things, uh, if not the murder of his father. Um, and then his his uh, actions with the youth at the end of the at the end of the novel are very important because the he he helps turn a socialist youth uh, who is an atheist and uh, and a communist, you know, at the age of like twelve, uh, oh. <laughs> and is a leader of all of the other kids. He's also, like, very
0: violent kids when yeah, he first meets yeah, yeah. them.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and they're the ones who, you know, they they're, they 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 bully a particular kid who ends up dying, right. and uh, and Alyosha kind of helps turn and lead those kids, uh, and you know, and and establishes this new community at the end of the at the end of the book and, and, you know, says things like, we're going to, we're going to commemorate these, this life and we're going to live to be worthy of it. And uh, so it's really establishing a new kind of community. So, I mean, Alyosha is just a crucial figure yeah. and, uh, and, you know, he's been um, not been overly honored in the world and, uh, and, but nevertheless, he has gone through, uh, you know, the the course of the novel Uh, Pretty uncorrupted, and uh, you know he's turned other people as well, and I don't mean to just limit it to those. Uh, So yeah, he's the model. And seeing what Alyosha does over the course of the novel, I think shows that the the rock of any resistance to the revolutionary movement is gonna be the church, and it and it's gonna be rooted in memory, and uh, and pointing toward virtue and that virtue is a specifically christian virtue and uh and so yeah i mean I uh, um it you know the the rumors are there's kind of indications all over brothers k that there's supposed to be a second volume i don't believe it you don't i don't believe nice. it um nice. because uh because the ending seems perfect
0: the ending seems really uh like a, a much broader Perfect ending to um, his brother. His brother wrote a uh, nouns are quickly fleeing me. Earlier in the novel, when he sits with his brother, and his brother tells him uh, the story of you know Jesus
1: comes back, Grand Inquisitor, the
0: Grand Inquisitor. Mm-hmm. So, it, it to me, it seems to to be a much broader, more meaningful, impactful ending, similar to that in scope, where. He doesn't have a re- response to his brother's sort of atheist tirade, atheistic tirade. And all he does at the very end is is sort of gives him a kiss and leaves.
1: And that is the response.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, it feels like he did the exact same thing with the end where it's like, yeah, you have a bunch of kids who are celebrating a life of a kid that they also were involved in sort of hurting. Yeah. And they are excited about waffles and the resurrection.
1: Yeah. They... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he wins with love, but it's not like an affirming love. Right. It's um, it's a love that recognizes human suffering, and um, and always speaks and acts the truth, and that's good. doesn't that's live cool. a lie. And so, uh, you know, so it's not liberal in any way. Right. Um, so yeah, and and that's the character he seems to be really throughout the novel.
0: Right. Right, yeah, and Dostoevsky ending there does seem to be—he's narrowed the scope to, at the very least, this is the person you must be in these times.
1: In order to have, yeah, a- and the revolutionaries in that book, you know, go crazy, <laughs> and uh, whereas the revolutionaries in Demons, I mean, some of them go crazy, um, but not the not the chief revolutionaries, right? Um, you know, and 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 that really leads to another theme, a huge theme of his, because the 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 chief revolutionaries, the true revolutionaries who are willing to commit violence uh, to kill the innocent in order to achieve their political ends, um, are people without conscience. Right. And uh, the character in demons who is like that is Pyotr Stepanovich, and uh, he is just going from town to town doing this. And he leaves the town that he burns down. He's going to do it again. The people that were kind of his followers, um, you know, they all confess and go to jail. You know what a bunch of saps, from the point of view of that revolutionary right. spirit. Right. And there's a similar character. There's, I think, only the two, char- the only two characters um, in Dostoevsky who don't have consciences. Um, there's a character like that in Brothers K, Shmerdyakov, yeah. who is the one who kills um, the the father, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, Fyodor.
0: Fyodor Kamazov. I, yeah.
1: I knew there was a brother something, and it right. wasn't Dostoevsky. <laughs> and, um, and you know, he's a man without a conscience. Not clear he's a human being. Right. Um, you know, fr- from the way he's talked about in the book, um, because fully human because he doesn't have a conscience. But Pyotr is, you know, just a great liar, um, one of the great demons um in literature, and certainly in Dostoevsky's corpus. Um uh so you know that's just another resource on which to draw but dostoevsky i think really does raise the question whether people who are consumed with the revolutionary spirit have their conscience seared um and uh you know first timothy talks about that and uh and i think that's what he means by demon a demon
0: someone whose conscience has just been on the grill searing Mm -hmm. to nothing yeah if you were listening, if, if, if let's say someone's listening to this and they are interested in sort of finding a place to start, what would you recommend them starting with?
1: In Dostoevsky?
0: Dostoevsky, or even if you would say, well, why don't you start a little broader or somewhere else? Or would you start them with Dostoevsky? Um.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh That's a great question. I mean, I I think the I think Dostoevsky's novels were – his novels were written in serial form, so one after another in yep. papers. Dostoevsky himself was always kind of running after money uh, because of gambling debts. He himself had a different kind of demon. Right. And, uh, you know, be- between drinking and gambling debts, he had genuine problems. And And I don't think his novels are perfect. I think there are loose threads that when you pull them, you're like, well, I don't, he never really resolved that issue. And uh, and they are sometimes on very important things, um, and I think it happens in nearly every one of his novels. So I don't think uh, there's what, what you could what we call in the business logographic necessity in <laughs> Dostoevsky. Every word isn't there for right. exactly one reason. Right. Um, but I think the quality of his thought is kind of unbelievable, um, and I think each of the novels has a certain character that uh, if if you can't it's difficult to get through the first third of the book. Um, be, there's just a lot of characters. You don't have any idea where it's going. Um, Russian names sort of. Russian name, but you know, but I'll, I, that, I'll but I think Tolstoy doesn't have this problem.
0: Oh, interesting, um, okay.
1: And so I think they're just, the, the plot takes longer to appear. Okay. Um, and so you have to get over that hump in dostoevsky the book for me that was easiest to get over the hump was demons okay um like but i had to act it was basically an act of faith but and i started it several times but i know this is good because right. this person told me yeah and so i'm gonna get over the hump um whereas brothers k like i read it for the first time is like if you don't know brothers k is great you're living under a rock right so like that you can go right but but you know i so but but it's a real investment it's twice the size of demons right and demons ain't nothing and uh so i would say demons is a place to begin with dostoevsky as long as you have faith that everything is really important in the book or that the ultimate teaching of the book is going to be very revealing so you should um take a look at it and then uh my videos that they're all available for free like i just do this because i want to promote russian literature um and uh i think my videos can help be a kind of spine for a reading of the book
0: totally totally awesome well demons i've never heard anybody recommend demons with that question and that's that makes it very cool uh i I haven't i feel like everyone would do like everyone would say maybe crime and punishment or something you know the one that you read in school that's not bad that's not bad
1: yeah i have a video series on that too and should have talked more about that
0: no sweat well we really appreciate you coming in thank you so much doctor
1: all right thank you for having me take
0: care